Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. It's 12 sharp on Tuesday the 21st of March on Fine Music Radio, which means you're tuned into Book Choice, an hour of book reviews and author interviews with me, your host, Paige Nick. Sponsored by Exclusive Books. Here's what we have lined up for today's show. Shirley Gwella is up first with a review of a novel called Circus Train by Amita Parik. Then we have Beverly Royce Miller reviewing a remarkable Booker Award-nominated novel that I just loved. It's called The Trees and it's by Percival Everett. Rachel van der Feyfer, who's in grade 9 at Rustenburg High School, joins us after that to review a sci-fi anthology called Tasting Light. It's a young adult series published by Penguin Random House. And if you're a parent or a grandparent to a young adult who likes to read or who you'd like to see read a bit more, do listen out for this review. Then Vanessa Levenstein takes the microphone with our first non-fiction title for the show called Harney, A Life Too Short, which is by Janet Smith and Beauregard Trump. John Hanks makes up our nature book segment after that with a series of pocket-sized books, Insects of Kruger and Mammals of Kruger. And before we get into the interviews, our final review of the show goes to Anthony Frijon, who read ANC Billionaires by Peter Dutoy. Finally, we wrap up the show with two fantastic interviews. Beryl Eichenberger chats to David Rolf Viviers on his debut novel, Mirage, and Twanji Kalula takes us out with an interview with Anne Schlebusch on her debut novel called Bloomer. And all of these reviews and interviews will be bookended by some literally wonderful music. You'll see why. All curated and compiled by Rick Everett and Dave Woods. Thank you for the music, you guys. And so we begin our journey with Chapter 1, Page 1. Welcome to the show, Shirley Gwella. I hadn't heard of this novel before. It's called Circus Train by Amitabh Parikh. But I do like the look of it. What did you think, Shirley? Not for nothing is Circus Train being touted as an international bestseller, written by Amita Parikh, but it's a good yarn. Since the reviews on the inside cover are mainly from readers, not genuine review critics, words like super, beautiful, mesmerizing, exquisite and spellblinding may stretch the belief a little. It is also a little far-fetched. It is nevertheless entertaining, a love story which sort of begins between two children when they are aged 9 and 12. You see what I mean about suspending belief. Helena, called Lena, is a girl gifted with a brilliant brain and inquiring mind, but also with the aftermath of polio, which makes her an outsider. And Alexandra is the boy, another outsider, whose life has been anything but normal whose morals were those taught by an arch-thief, but with enough of a good heart and good values to be appealing. In other words, all is imbued with sufficient credibility to make it, and again I say, sort of, all possible. Illusions of the Houdini and David Copperfield types, loyalty, commitment, dogged determination, and the glamour that we, the uninitiated with big eyes and a heart ready to accept the impossible, put into our dreams of the big top. Of course, this is the illusion. Circus life is hard. Working to perfect acts and create new and better ones is far more difficult than the glamorous dreams allow. And the writer has described this well. Then travel, always traveling, never settling. The imperfect lives are affected, of course, by the war. The novel spans a couple of decades and with other catastrophes, lies and deceptions, half-truths, a lot of cities and a lot of circus folk and a fair number of nasty Nazis, 
all make for something to get your teeth into for a short while. The novel is ambitious and sweeping, traveling the length of Europe and summer breaks in Thessaloniki, and in sweeping saga style, it tackles art, astronomy, and of course the wonders of magic. The romp around Europe on a beautifully fitted train with a great cook and a secret hideaway is not all moonlight and roses, and even the ending is predictable or unpredictable, or is it predictable? Farik has done loads of research into polio and made her heroine Lena rise above it, moving from wheelchair to braces to no assistance at all, with grit and gutsy determination. She has gone into the background of Theresienstadt, that well-loathed so-called spa town built for Jewish people, and shown its truly ugly side and the hopelessness and helplessness of many of its residents. And she has looked into circuses and the magic they have wrought and brought over the years and rekindled one's childhood with all that mystery, allure and happily ever after. All that said, it's an easy read, although the subjects are not necessarily easy. The one-word cover reviews aside and the fact that her editors think a person born to a Jewish mother but Aryan father was safe in the war, it's really quite good. The Greek word epimeno, persistence, used by Lena's father, Theo, as an inspiration for Lena, sums it up. Not persistence to finish the book, because that was not hard, but the persistence, the perseverance of fighting against all odds. While both Theo and Alexandra live lives based on a lie, one can forgive all. It's occasionally too neat for my liking, as too many knots get tied too quickly. And yes, of course, one is a wedding knot, but for her teacher, the lonely, dedicated Clara. So to sum up, it's a good read in the dwindling days of summer. Now this next review is of a novel that I have a great deal of admiration for. I read The Trees by Patrick Everett a few months ago when it was nominated for the International Booker Prize. What astonished me about this book is how the author manages to write fantastic, hilarious comedy about an incredibly serious and devastating time in history. How do you write a comedy about the lynchings in America? That takes some skill. So I've been waiting keenly to hear what Beverly Rose Miller thought about this book and if she echoed my sentiments. If the mad bad past isn't dealt with, beware. It might come back to bite you. This wary notion lies at the heart of an extraordinary book, The Trees by Percival Everett, shortlisted for last year's prestigious Booker Prize. I think it could easily have won. It's a dark and deeply satirical page-turner set in the town of Money, Mississippi, in which a series of brutal murders begins to manifest. At each crime scene are castrated dead white men and the desiccated corpse of a young black man which keeps mysteriously disappearing. The ironically named Money, Mississippi is an actual small town holding a particularly nasty place in the era of the Deep South's racial violence. In 1955, a 14-year-old black boy, Emmett Till, who was alleged to have made a remark to a white woman in a store there, was abducted, tortured, mutilated and killed, his body thrown into the local river. Though it was known who the two white men were who did it, they were three freed by a white jury and, protected by double jeopardy, admitted the following year that they had indeed done the crime. The author of this modern narrative, set in a notorious backward little town, is black. A distinguished professor of English in the University of Southern California with 20 books to his name and is noted for his bold take on race, violence and the peculiarities of history, also a wicked sense of humour. Think Mark Twain meets Stephen King. 
The ancient wise woman of the community, Mama Z, keeps lists and lists of the names of thousands of black men who were lynched in the deep south, whose murders were never investigated nor charges laid. But as the pattern of these peculiar murders begins to spread across the United States, her granddaughter Dixie wonders if there might be a connection to those historic injustices which are now simply consigned to her grandmother's lists. Dixie enlists a friend, a young academic savant, Damon Thrun. At 27, he holds three PhDs, but is unable to find tenure because of his youthful prodigy. His dean has promised him a potential job if he just stops publishing. This is a satirical crack at universities. So instead, he begins to record Mama Z's lists of names in order, he says mysteriously, to eventually erase them and set them free. Two black detectives from Mississippi Bureau of Investigation arrive. When challenged by the white community, they respond by saying they joined the force, so Whitey wouldn't be the only one in the room with a gun. These two investigators are confounded by money, Mississippi. It's like slipping back in time. They ask Mama Z if these dead, castrated white men are some sort of retribution for an appalling history that has never been properly acknowledged. Indeed, it is being written out of history in the conservative states. Mama Z's take is that lynching for white men is not because they are afraid of black men. For them, it's a sport. There are, in between the eye-raising scenes, some hilarious gems. On viewing yet another massacre, one of the Bureau's investigators says to his partner, I think we need a bigger boat. That's for fans of jewels, of course. The power of the trees is that it goes big on the offensive, in an age of populism and denialism. Just a year ago, President Joe Biden signed into law the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act that makes lynching a federal hate crime. That such an act was needed in this modern era is more horrifying than anything in this book. The Trees is an outstanding and memorable novel.
That was wonderful. The George Gershwin classic played by saxophonist Mike Lartz. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. If you're a parent or a grandparent to a teen, take a close listen to this next review. Rachel van der Feyfer is in grade 9 at Russenberg High School, and this is her review of a sci-fi anthology that the teen in your life might enjoy. It's called Tasting Light. Hey, you never know. If it's good, it may even get them off their phones for half a second. Tasting Light is an anthology of 10 short science fiction stories, all set in futuristic worlds. The stories pose a question. What if there was a world where you can modify anything about yourself? A future where humans inhabit Jupiter's moons, or a society in which women are forced to only feel happy? E.C. Myers, author of the sci-fi book Faircoin, writes The Cage, the story of two teens who supposedly disappear into a parallel universe. The Cage discusses themes of surveillance and privacy, set in a society where people's every movement and discussion is tracked and used. Cadence, written by Charlotte Nicole Davis, authors of the Good Luck Girl series, is set in a world where you can change anything about yourself or appearance, and follows a teen who chooses a voice from a dead person. Smile River is set in a futuristic America, which following a civil war creates the three great solutions, one of which is the family solution that requires women to smile all the time and always be happy. The story follows different generations of the same family, ending with the one which will save them all. I really enjoyed reading all the stories, and it was fun seeing all the different styles. One story was written as a transcript of podcasts, another was a comic. There was even one written in second person, with the reader as part of the story. I would definitely recommend Tasting Light to any fans of YA science fiction. We turn to Vanessa Levenstein for her in-depth take on a non-fiction title brought out to highlight and commemorate the 30-year anniversary of Chris Harney's assassination. Harney, A Life Too Short by Janet Smith and Beauregard Trump. I remember my father telling me the story of how towards the end of the 80s, he went to Zimbabwe with the anti-apartheid group NAMDA, the National Medical and Dental Association. My father, a doctor, was part of a delegation to meet the ANC. As my father and other delegates entered the room, there stood Chris Harney, who singled my father out, didn't say a word, but walked up to him with a broad grin and embraced him. When my mother asked, why you? My father replied, I was the only white person there. So my reasons for reading Harney, A Life Too Short, by Janet Smith and Beauregard Trump really stemmed from wanting to meet this man with a big heart who, had he lived, would have more than likely changed South Africa's post-Mandela narrative, a hypothesis that is painful to think about, as we know this great leader would have ruled with integrity, strength and vision, and we would be in a very different place today. Born Martin Tembisile Hani, Chris Hani grew up in Sabela. To his mother he was an exceptional boy, a good son. He was also very bright, and so at 15 was sent to a school in Lovedale, where the harsh conditions sounded like they were out of a Dickens novel. It was at school he was recruited to join the ANC. Harney said, I belong to a world, in terms of my background, which suffered, I think, the worst extremes of poverty, so I never faltered in my belief of socialism. And he never did falter. His value system was consistent, as Harney the soldier, political prisoner, the Chief of Staff of Mkonto Wisizwe, General Secretary of the South African Communist Party, activist and revolutionary. He cared not only about the movement, but also about the people in the movement. A former soldier said he would speak to you like a brother. He was interested in all kinds of things about people, what subjects people had chosen to do at school. A bodyguard said, we understood that this was a man 
who would die for us. The book reads like a part thriller on the political battlefields, part biography, lyrical in places, and also has echoes of Homeric proportions, what the hero who remained in exile for 30 years. During that time, Harney went to Russia for training, where it contrasted against the strict military training in the Russian camps, there were regular trips to museums, concerts and the ballet. Another quirky bit. When Harney was in a Zimbabwean jail, someone well-meaning sent the prisoners the capitalist board game Monopoly. But by far my favourite story was how Joe Slovo taught Chris how to ride a bicycle, with Chris complaining that Joe was trying to kill him. Harney was a man who read Shelley and Keats, enjoyed African jazz, jogged every day, was a lover, husband and father, and yet there was very little time for him to be anything other than a leader in the liberation struggle. Of course we know the ending, but here's the strange thing. When reading the book about a man so vital, so alive, it's still a shock to turn over the page and see Chapter 12, Assassination. The book was first published in 2009 and then republished this year to coincide with the 30th anniversary of Harney's death. There's now an epilogue and I confess to being perplexed as to why the authors felt the need to not only put Julius Malema's shout out on the back cover, but also give him so much print space in the epilogue for him to hold forth. I'm only going to give this one line because I don't want to give this airtime. But Harney's inclusive leadership, his ability to expand, to grow, is very much at variance with Malema's exclusive and intolerant leadership. So the flawed and undermining epilogue aside, Harney, a life too short, really does combine the personal and political to tell a story of an extraordinary man, a hero who took up arms to achieve peace, who lived in exile so he could free the country of his birth. His message is as relevant now as it was then. What we need in South Africa is for egos to be suppressed in favour of peace. We need to create a new breed of South Africans who love their country and love everybody, irrespective of his or her colour. Thank you, Vanessa. This next track is also wonderful, literally. It's Wonderful Wonderful, sung by Johnny Mathis. Sometimes we walk hand in hand by the sea and we breathe in the cool, salty air. You turn to me with a kiss in your eyes, and my heart feels a thrill beyond
is full of wondrous things, it's true. But they wouldn't have much meaning without you. Some quiet evening I sit by your side and we're lost in a world of our own. I feel the choice on fine music radio you'll find all the titles mentioned on today's show at your local exclusive books john hanks is always reading something interesting today we'll be hearing about two pocket-sized titles insects of kruger and mammals of kruger and these are part of the nature now series well i have no hesitation in strongly recommending three superbly illustrated and informative pocket-sized field guides for the kruger national park all published by Strake Nature, an imprint of Penguin Random House, South Africa. The format used is ideal for a field guide, easy to use from a vehicle or on foot, and all written in a way that I'm sure would encourage visitors to Kruger to stop and observe the area's extraordinary biodiversity. The first of the three is called Mammals of Kruger. It's written by Joan Young, a very experienced tour guide and environmental educator, and she started with some most useful game-viewing tips. Over 80 species are described with excellent photographs and with key features of identification highlighted in the text, from the world-famous Big Five to a selection of some of the lesser-known and more elusive mammals. I like the approach used for identifying antelope, where the smaller species can be difficult to separate, but where this book scores for me is its really interesting text, highlighting characteristics and behavior of each animal. Moving on to the second field guide, Insects and Other Critters of Kruger. It's also written by Joan Young, and this one has more than 200 commonly encountered invertebrates, once again with some most useful viewing tips, noting that unlike the mammals, Real patience and persistence is required to capture photographs to match the high-quality featured in this book. Perhaps not surprisingly, insects make most of the critters featured. And it was a real pleasure for me to have my eyes opened to the fascinating diversity of some of the most attractive members of the animal kingdom. I must confess I'm genuinely embarrassed to admit I have overlooked them far too often. The book cannot fail to capture attention with equally superb photographs and informative text on what Joan Young refers to as other critters, namely ticks and mites, woodlice, spiders, scorpions, millipedes and centipedes. Calling attention to the vital ecological importance of these invertebrates, one sentence in the book sums it up slightly, and I quote, 
The small creatures featured in this guide play an indispensable role in the park. Without them, there would be no park, end quote. If you think this is an exaggeration, read the book and you will see why these little creatures are so vital for the life of other species of animals and plants as well. The third book of the trio is entitled Trees of Kruger. It's written by Professor Bram van Weyck, an award-winning authority on the classification of southern African trees. This field guide features 80 of the larger, more conspicuous and common tree species likely to be seen while traveling in Kruger, And as for the other two books in this series, it is superbly illustrated. With photographs of each tree in full display, together with well-selected images to aid identification, such as flowers, fruit, leaves, and bark. What I found especially useful are the detailed series of maps demarcating 35 different vegetation types or landscapes within the park to help readers to determine where the tree species are likely to be seen in which area. For those who want to know more about how these various parts of the trees described are used by humans in an amazing number of different ways, such as making alcoholic beverages, making mats, basket, hats, paper, furniture, and fence poles, and their very important role in traditional medicine. For most species, this is supplemented by notes on which browsers feed on the leaves, fruit, and bark. So, to conclude, if anyone is planning a trip to Kruger National Park and or a trip to any of the other South African protected areas, I have no hesitation whatsoever in strongly recommending all three field guides. And at 230 rand for each one, they are extremely good value. The titles again, Mammals of Kruger, Insects and Other Critters of Kruger, and Trees of Kruger. And more non-fiction, and our last review before we turn to our wonderful interviews, Anthony Frijan read ANC Billionaires by Peter Dutoy. The ANC Billionaires, Big Capital's Gambit, and The Rise of the Few by Peter Dutoy. There's a timeline of events, 1983 to 2021. There are clearly remembered events and many now forgotten, Events that might not have been recognized of being of importance at the time, and now is a good time to be reminded. Very handy for getting some perspective. Just some of the characters, Gavin Rilly, Anglo-American, Big Capital Anton Rupert, the Liberation Movement, Oliver Tambo, Trevor Manuel, the politicians, P.W. Buerta, F.W. de Klerk, the fixers, Van Zale Slobbert. And, of course, the ANC Billionaires, the subject of this excellent book by Peter de Toy. Seven ANC Billionaires appear, but for this review, I'll only mention two of them. Patrice Mazzepe and, naturally, President Cyril Ramaphosa. In 1997, Anglo's Gold Division handed over seven underperforming gold shafts to a 35-year-old black man, Patrice Mazzepe. He had no experience, almost no money, but a determination to succeed where Anglo-American had failed. Within three years, he had succeeded in turning the operation around and was able to repay Anglo the $8.2 million they had lent him to purchase the mines. Mosepe went on to become Black Africa's first dollar billionaire. Being connected was doubtless a major benefit. President Ramaphosa 
Here is a detailed account of the twists and turns, ups and downs of his business and political journey. This is a good time to follow his path to the presidency. Views on his business acumen varied from he was a good person to work for, he built a stronger team at Chanduka than at comparable companies, to he was prone to dithering, preferred discussing to decision, he was a reluctant decision-maker. A hallmark of his presidency is an inability to make difficult decisions, an unwillingness to make enemies in service of principle, and a lack of conviction. If one is interested in our President Ramaphosa, Chapter 16 is required reading. Author Peter de Toy, in his own words, this is an attempt to investigate the role of big capital before, during and after our transition from apartheid to democracy and how it influenced the ANC government's economic policies and the eventual rise of connected millionaires and billionaires. In this, Peter de Toy has succeeded magnificently. Impeccably researched, he makes it clear as to why we, as a country, are where we are today. Bobby Gonsal, the ANC on its return, exuded a sense of entitlement. There was a sense that political office, political power, entitles you to economic benefit. Informative, enlightening and concise. It doesn't require the reader to have a degree in economics, business or politics. The last word from Trevor Manuel makes depressing reading. All the battles to achieve economic growth, transformation and the role of big capital need to be fought again. And trust in government, by investors and business, all of that's gone. All of that is gone. The ANC billionaires, Big Capital's Gambit and the Rise of the Few by Peter de Toy from Jonathan Ball Publishers. Available at leading bookstores at 300 Rand. Highly recommended if you want to understand how we have reached this point in South Africa. Darling, it's
Welcome back. If you love books, your dial is in the right place for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. That song was Darling, It's Wonderful, sung by Virginia Lee. For our first wonderful interview today, Beryl Eichenberger will be chatting to wonderful debut novelist David Rolfe about his wonderful new release called Mirage. Welcome to the show to you both. A new author to burst onto the South African literary fiction scene is actor and Flirty Cup winner David Ralph Viviers. He brings us Mirage, a shimmering, beautifully crafted, but ambitious novel placed in that most mystical of places, the Karoo. There's a fascination for this area and an understanding that here the constellation of stars is the clearest, the air crisp and restoring, the barrenness yielding a unique plant life, and myths that accompany this place of mystery. It is a place of signs and symbols, where the locals are attuned to the movement of the earth and nature's response. But the title is much deeper than that. Welcome, David. Thank and you so congratulations much. on the launch. Thank you. It very was much. really very, very exciting. So you're an actor. Yes. Let's talk about the transition between writer and actor, and, I'm, and you are still acting. I am very much still acting. I'm currently in a soapy in Joburg called Binnenlander. Oh! <laughs> so, where I play Dr. Liam. But um, to be honest, Beryl, I, my first dream as a child was to be a writer before I wanted to be an actor. Um, and I found out that the two kind of complement each other really, really mm. well, because as an actor, um, you have a lot of free time on your hands <laughs> when you're waiting to go from one job to the next, you're in between auditions. Um, and I think just also in terms of, you know, as an actor, you're always connecting with other people and it's a very sure. outgoing art form, if you will. It sort of relies on that. But as a writer, you get to kind of journey inwards and it's a much more, I suppose, introverted, lonely but beautiful art forms. So I think the two work really well together. I, I wouldn't really say there's a transition from one to the other. I think I will probably keep doing both for as long as I it's can. It's a complement to each <laughs> exactly. other, as you quite rightly said. Exactly. I always sort of think when, when somebody is an actor mm. that basically you're drawing the curtains on the pages uh, for the author. That, that's yes. how I visualize it that's and, and how, I, how I sort of see it. Yeah. But you were extraordinarily... Would I say lucky mm. to have Damon Galgut as your mentor? Tell us about that. <laughs> Incredibly lucky. I was lucky enough to... Um, Mr. Galgut, I believe. Mr. Galgut, <laughs> yes. When I first... Um, well, I did my MA in creative writing mm -hmm. at UCT. And as part of that, we have to get a supervisor on board. Sure. And they asked me, who would I want? And I mean, I just thought, well, I might as well dream as big as I can and Absolutely. ask Damon Galgut if he would want to supervise me. So I sent him an email saying, dear Mr. Galgut, <laughs> <laughs> I would really love to meet up with you. I would like to write a book. I don't know what it's going to be about. I know I want to set it in the Karoo. I think there's a Victorian author involved. I know time must behave differently. Mm. And maybe there's a dead mother. And with those kind of scraps, he, he said, yes, sure, let's meet and chat. And he took me on board. And I'm so incredibly lucky. This was also before he won the Booker Prize. So, <laughs> so now you're doubly lucky. I know, exactly. <laughs> the stars have aligned. So, yes, the stars have aligned. I, I was, what did I, when I started reading, I started thinking of that movie, and the book, A Fault in the Stars. I haven't actually read it, or it just seen, sort of but I know. It just sort of hit me. Yeah. Because 
there are lots of fault lines here yes. as well. Mm. So let's talk to the story. A very brief synopsis, because we're not going to do any spoilers on this. No, we are not. Um, so very briefly, it starts off with a trunk being dug up in the Karoo. And it belonged to a Victorian author named Elizabeth Tennant. Um, and inside is Elizabeth's lost journal that she wrote in the 1800s, as well as what seems to be the remains of a child wrapped up in bandages. Now, Michael is the protagonist. This is he uh, lives in the present time, our time, and he's researching her life. So he's obviously very excited about this trunk mm -hmm. and the journal. But as he's reading it, he comes across a description that seems to be about him and his mother which obviously makes no sense because this was written a hundred years before either of, of their time. So he travels to the Karoo and the old Karoo Hotel where she lived and he starts to decipher these secrets. It's a very powerful novel. Thank you. I, I found that there were a lot of themes. Yes. And you have to be alert yes. to those themes. I, I did find that I was going sort of backwards to mm. just double check. But... You, you've, you have these themes of astronomy mm. and black holes and the link between nature and human, humans. Human. And I, I think that that link between nature and humans is what struck me mm. most. I mean, particularly in the Karoo. Why did you set it in the Karoo? Well, I've always been very intrigued by Olive Schreiner mm. and her life and her writings of the Karoo. She lived in Mikey's Fontaine for a while. And she wrote these letters to her friends about the Karoo and this kind of unity she saw in the landscape, mm -hmm. you know, from the rocks to the plants to the stars. And that, for me, really, uh, I connected with that, this kind of idea, as you say, that sort of binds humans with nature and how that to her was almost spiritual. You know, that was where she found her God. Someone asked her once, um, you know, where where do you see God or what do you, where do you think God is? And she said it's, you know, it's in all these things, in the landscape, in the rocks, in the stars, mm -hmm. even in the train rushing past. Um, and it's how these things all kind of fit together, which I found really fascinating. So, and yes, she was a huge inspiration. You, you get that very well across in the novel. Oh, that's good. You know, I, yeah. I also, I, I feel very similarly yeah. to that. And you spoke about cracks and connections yes. at your launch. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? I think, yeah, I mean, the the cracks and connections, they, there's a lot of, it's a, it's a novel of failure in a way and of loss and of things that go wrong in this life and how, you know, in some way we're all going to have to deal with loss and trauma and the cracks in our lives, you know, either people that mm -hmm. pass away or friendships that fall apart like or relationships. Michael's mother. Exactly, Michael who lost his mother when he was 12. And I think in the way the book is, it's asking the question like, do we, is loss permanent? Where do these people go? Where do these things go, or these mm -hmm. memories or experiences? I mean, have they disappeared? Have they just slipped through a crack or a portal into another realm? You, 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 you sort of explore that as yes, well. Yep. Yes, I mean, this whole idea of parallel universes mm, and, mm. and maybe in another dimension things are going better um, and we maybe didn't lose the person in, in another life. So cracks and holes, I mean, they write throughout this idea that they're holes in the fabric of the world um, and things are disappearing and, and yeah. I, I very much agree with the parallel universe because Michael is, he's tracing Elizabeth's life through her journal, but at the same time he's tracing his own life. Mm. And I found there was a tremendous similarity between Elizabeth's man, mm. we want to call that, and 
Michael's father because yes, they were both gardeners. Exactly. And, 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 and that plays a huge role, in fact, in the book. It does indeed. And um, they have very similar names. One mm. is William, one is Wilhelm. Mm-hmm. Also, Elizabeth, her middle name is Rose. And Michael's mother's name is Erica, mm. so we get you know the the repetition Ooh, I've got of goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> the repetition of of flora, you know. Um, but it was very much that the idea that you know maybe history repeats itself over and over. Mm. And in the next story, maybe two people have a little bit more time together. But you know maybe things will work out better in the next life, in the next um, the next chance. And I, I also try to bring the idea that you know life and people, it's it's and experiences it's a recycling of atoms over yes. and over again oh, yes. and stardust you know mm-hmm. just taking on different forms and in a way it's it's not lost because whatever happens the atoms you know get a chance to become something else later on yeah, yeah. They're very quickly because we're going to run out Sorry, of time I'm so much. <laughs> no no you're which is wonderful okay. mirage yes. because that has more meanings than one it why mirage because mm. there is so much mystery in this book so firstly it was a very definite homage to Olive Schreiner who wanted mm-hmm. to call her book the story of an African farm mirage originally mm-hmm. um, so that was an, a nod to her who's she's been a huge uh, figure in my life in many ways but also the idea that you're chasing one mystery after the next and it's always kind of just Shimmering past, just, past your reach. Just out of reach. Just out of reach. David, thank you so much and congratulations once again. It's a very beautiful book. Mirage is published by Penguin Random House and the author is David Ralph Viviers. Thank you so much. For our final interview on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, Twanji Kalula recently hosted the launch of a fun-sounding debut novel by Anne Schlebusch. It's called Bloomer. So I invited them both into the studio to chat about it. I'm joined by award-winning writer Anne Schlebusch. She's best known for her young adult fiction and has written her first novel, Bloomer, which follows the exploits of a group of friends at a Cape Town retirement village. It is filled with humour, it is fun, but it's also really smart and addresses a number of serious social issues. Thanks for joining me, Anne. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about the premise and the characters in this exciting novel, Bloomer? (laughs) Thank you. It's lovely to hear it called exciting. (laughs) We tend not to think that old people are exciting, right? (laughs) It's important to me. It is actually multi-generational. So there's some grandparents in in a retirement home. Um, They're their children aged sort of late 40s and then they're their children in their 20s. So it's a whole mix. It came at a time, I started writing it at a time when when the world was having a sharp focus on old people all of a sudden. I mean, it's never happened in my lifetime that the core topic is aged. So it was people dying in Italy, you know, in vast numbers. And then came the info that said, actually, it's old people who are dying in, in Italy of COVID. So that kind of cheered people up, you know, old people die, that's fine. Then there were there was a new trend inside America. Mike Pence suddenly started to talk about his mother, and we must do everything to save our mothers. So suddenly, old people were being cherished, but the definition of cherished quite varied. You know, in many cases, they were just locked, locked into old age homes, and and that equals cherishing. Very little attention to their mental journeys, etc., etc., etc. Just safe from germs. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was a preoccupation of the world. It was very much a preoccupation of mine. I was of that kind of age, and I wanted it to be authentic. I can't help making it fun because I am just a naturally exuberant wild kind of soul <laughs> so, you really are <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> I take that as a compliment and so yeah it was a blend of, of 
my unassailable wit and my, um, my torment, really, about sort of what was happening in worldview about old people. I think the character I found most fascinating was the lead character, Maggie, um, who kind of runs the the show. But what is most interesting about her, um, as I was reading her, there are moments where you'd be mistaken for thinking it was Bridget Jones. You know, she's <laughs> lots of fun and she's layered. And one of the things I really liked about the book is that you show that getting older doesn't mean that you become less dimensional. Um, how important was it for you to kind of create characters that were so well-rounded and still grappling with the same things that people decades younger grapple with. Thank you. It was very important to me that the characters should present themselves as authentic because there are they're not vast numbers of books written and set in old age homes, but those that are do tend to kind of, you know, jaunt around with stereotypes and so on. I mean, it's hard to avoid stereotypes, but, but I wanted to... So I remember sitting there sort of inventing the characters, writing down all their character aspects and so on, like a well-trained author. <laughs> but yeah, so my, part of my trap was that there's a temptation then to have each of the people talking as though they're the same person. And so that was something I had to go back and kind of cross check to kind of say, it can't just be different people using the same vocab and the same intonation and what have you. So I went back and made sure to my satisfaction at any rate that they came out as different and and yeah, full of different perspectives on life. And, and that, that was really valuable to me as I tried to develop this theme. And I want to emphasize that the book is fun, but you don't shy away from serious issues. Mm. You know, I was quite like surprised to see themes like Black Lives Matter and racial dynamics and all of those things come in. Um, and why did you think it was important to kind of incorporate those themes as well? I think if I'd left them out, that would have been quite a flimsy kind of work because it's not really just checklist of this, that, the other for old folk, you know, but it, what? there's a whole lot more than that, you know. And so um, I think sometimes we, we lose track of that rather sort of important concept of the elders. You know, there's a whole worldview that kind of says the elders are, are precious, you know, differently from keeping them locked up and safe from germs. So the, these people couldn't merely have been thinking about the, the barriers to their physical lives at that time, they they would have to be talking about and thinking about other things. And the world was addressing, um, that was the, the, the big burst out of the Black Lives Matter. So you can't just be sort of, you know, talking about jelly and custard, you know, you're talking about important things. And, and there they were. Uh, I'd be denying part of myself if I left them out. Absolutely. And talking about, you know, denying parts of yourself, the book, the characters are so well-rounded in the book. Um, you know, they're kind of still grappling with things like mm. intimacy, sexuality, reconciling their childhoods and, mm. you know, connecting with their children. Mm. Um, and why do you think there's this kind of tendency to kind of write these really flat elderly characters when you, when, when, when you kind of set a book in an old age home? Well, I mean, that's also interesting because I had a little debate with somebody quite early on about whether this was commercial fiction or literary fiction, as if it actually entirely mattered, you know, where your book got shelved in the bookshop or, or in the library. And so I basically, I think I made no compromises. You know, I didn't kind of water down my vocab to, to win the, the elderly lit <laughs> uh, um, medal. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of nuanced vocab nuanced thinking and therefore I, it's not modeled on any other books it's modeled it's entirely um 
itself. And, you know, I can't say like it, take it or leave it. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you've got, you've got a choice. You can read it or you can not read it. But it's, it's important to me that just to restate, it's people are layered, people are, you know, COVID, well, it's not a book about COVID. It's a, it's a, it's a situational reflection, really, on, on multi-generational matters and, and living your life to the fullest. Absolutely. And what do you want people to take away from that and take away from the book ultimately? You know, a lot of older people start to think, I think, prematurely that they must kind of make sure they're not going to be a trouble. You know, maybe they've had trouble dealing with their own ancient parents and they kind of say, well, that's not going to happen to my children. So they, they, I think they tend to sort of pre-age themselves a, a, a little bit. And that was, that was really part of my mission is to say, don't, don't talk yourself out of living, you know. And, and you can do it in so many ways. As a young person, you can say, oh, well, I'll do all that when I retire, not taking into account the fact that by then you might be physically more frail, you, you get tired. You know, you can't actually do the great world tour necessarily unless you're infinitely rich and can do it on a cruiser. But after COVID, who wants to be on a cruiser in any case? Oops. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, live life, be blooming. You don't have to be a late bloomer. You don't have to be, you know, early ripe, early rot or whatever it is. <laughs> Just be um, eternally, yeah, exuberant is a nice word. And I must stress, the book deals with serious issues um, and it is set in a retirement village, but I think that it does make a statement for all generations. I really enjoyed reading it. I thought that the takeaway of the fact that we can decline at any age or we can make the choice to bloom at any age is so important. So, And thank you so much for joining me. Bloomer was published by Mojaji Books and it retails for 330 Rand. And now we wrap up the show. Thanks to Mzuma Keta and all our readers and reviewers, authors and publishers, and of course our thanks to Exclusive Books who sponsor this show. If you missed any of today's show, you can find the podcast on fmr.co.za. And we'll be back in two weeks with Book Choice, Publisher's Choice. Until then, this is What a Wonderful World with Dan Hill on Clarinet. From me, your host, Paige Nick. I wish you wonderful reading.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 